Turn your attention now to your worship folder insert. On one side, you will find the helpful outline for you, and on the other side, the sermon text for today, which is found in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, And you will be my my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is God's word. Seven. good morning. Um, my name is Jonathan, one of the pastors here at uh, Redeemer uh, City. Still can't get all the names straight uh, in my head. Uh, we're starting Acts today. Uh, we've been talking about it for a long time. Uh, we've been in Luke for, um, gosh, quite, quite some time. I think Advent of 2014, we started Luke. And then we just finished Easter a couple of uh, weeks ago. Uh, and we're moving into what is Luke's second book. Uh, as he begins there in Acts, uh, in the first book, Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, arguably Now that we're into the book of Acts, this is what Jesus is going to continue to do and to teach, uh, but through a different medium, through uh, his uh, apostles in the power of the Spirit who is coming uh, and will come in Acts chapter 2, which we'll get to next week. Um, But as we begin, uh, I would encourage you, if you've not had a chance to do this, go back to uh, August of last year's Vision Dinner Talk Uh, for a refresher, our theme for this ministry year uh, is praying for gospel advance, or has been praying for gospel advance. Uh, And as we work our way through the book of Acts, what you're going to see is this has been the work of the church since day one. The church has been praying for gospel advance since day one uh, and has been moving in that direction in the power of the Spirit uh, since the beginning. And so this series and this, uh, this, this working through this book uh, is going to underscore that theme in very powerful, very challenging two uh, ways for our church. Uh, being a career Presbyterian, uh, the irony is not lost on me that I would be talking to you about the Spirit 
Yeah. Some of you laugh. Those people who are laughing uh, are not laughing because of my comment about a career Presbyterian. They're laughing because they know me. Uh, And in the history of my life, I've danced one time. Uh, and it was uh, it was at a actually at a Christian gathering. Um, there was no alcohol or alternative substances being served. Um, it was the spirit. Uh, now I haven't danced since then, so I'm not sure what that says about me or the spirit's work in my life. Um, but as we get into Acts, it's going to challenge us. Uh, Drew mentioned that last week. That's going to challenge us. Uh, how kind is it of our Father that we would start Luke in community Bible reading the same week we begin Acts? So as we begin to read through the book of Acts uh, on Sundays, we're going to be reading in Luke, and so it'll reinforce a lot of the themes that we have seen uh, throughout the book of Luke as we move into his second book. In fact, or for one, for example, Luke has emphasized the Holy Spirit from day one of Jesus' ministry. We read it this week in Luke chapter 3 and 4. What does Jesus do after his baptism? He goes into the wilderness. And how does he go into the wilderness? Luke says, full of the Holy Spirit. He returns from the temptation. Uh, How? In verse 14 of Luke 4, in the power of the Spirit. So clearly there's something to that. Uh, As we see the Spirit guide and empower Jesus through his ministry from the very beginning. Today, what I want to do is focus really on uh, verses 6 through 11. Uh, I haven't read from uh, verse 1 down to verse 11, but I really want to kind of drill down into 6 through 11. And so the three points of the outline correspond to the three ideas I want to explore here. So you'll see them uh, on the insert there. First, the significance of the ascension. Why is it so important? Uh, How's that related to this commission that Jesus gives his apostles? The ascension is not something we talk very much about, but it is very significant. Uh, It's included in the Apostles' Creed, which ought to tell us something. Uh, Very important. Uh, Secondly, though, without the ascension, you don't get the Holy Spirit, uh, who is the power behind and the power that comes before our work. And then finally, uh, to borrow from... uh, Peter Parker's uncle, Ben, Peter Parker being Spider-Man, with great power, brings or comes great responsibility. So I want to look at that. What's our responsibility as a result of this power uh, that Jesus says we're going to receive? Uh, And again, all of this is kind of in lead up to next week in Acts chapter 2 where the Spirit really does come uh, in terms of our, our, uh, our chronology. So first, uh, he ascended into heaven. What's the significance of the ascension? Why is it so important? Well, I want to just kind of list off a number of things here about the ascension and what it does for us, why it's significant, why it's important. It's the last piece of Jesus' work on the earth before the Spirit can be sent. It's the consequence of Christ's ascension that the book of Acts is all about. His abiding presence, his, his energy fills the book. And the reason is because it begins with the ascension and consequently the Spirit coming. This account sets the stage for the rest of the book. It sets the stage for the rest of history uh, that we're living to even today. It follows and it completes the resurrection of Jesus. So it's not enough, this might sound a little heretical, I don't mean for it to, but it's not enough that he rose from the dead. He had to ascend back to his Father. It's necessary for his people 
to be united to him. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, uh, we're seated with him in the heavenly places. How are we seated with him? Without the ascension, we don't get seated there, right? Uh, it's, it's the final movement for Jesus to not just dwell in heaven, but to be exalted in heaven. He reigns as the head of creation and the king of his church. And the ascension, listen, the ascension is the victory march from hell into heaven as Jesus enters heaven. And as he enters, he enters as the conqueror of sin and death and Satan and the one who, as Paul says later in Ephesians, would give good gifts to his people. As he ascended on high, he leaves gifts for his people. Now look closely at uh, verse 9. Okay, why the need for him to be lifted up and a cloud take him out of their sight? If the goal was simply for him to get back to heaven, he could have just kind of, you know, into thin air, right? Why this way? Well, Luke says he was lifted up because he was ascending to his throne. The ascension is the completion of Jesus' exaltation because, you know, all kings take their throne, right? When they ascend or when they, when they come into uh, becoming king formally, they actually, they're, uh, the, the coronation ceremony, they're given their crown or their sword or whatever it is, and then they actually ascend up their throne, right? Because the, the throne is... Is elevated. It's above everything else. And so the ascension is Jesus literally ascending to take his throne. Not only that, but it's a move that's out of the boundaries of, of space and time. He's moving into the heavenly reality. And it means he's no longer bound. You know, on earth, when you spoke to him, you were speaking to him in a time and a place, and he said something to you, and you heard him, and it was on that day at that particular hour. Now, In the heavenly reality, everything he does, everything he says, his entire rule, in fact, is for the benefit of his people everywhere, his church globally. And so as he reigns in heaven, he rules over the entire earth. And it's because of the ascension of Jesus that his church can face the world uh, without fear, full of peace, knowing we have this king who is uh, directing history for the good of his people. And that's a a promise that's filled with hope in the midst of a world that we've all experienced uh, in, in things such as despair, depression, anxiety, hate. Uh, whatever you're facing today, at this hour, whatever you're facing, if your faith is in Christ, you face it knowing that Jesus is reigning and you can trust him. He, he's given you no reason to not trust him. He's supremely powerful. He's supremely good. And the ascension is proof of that. It matters for brothers and sisters in places like Egypt and Syria and Iran and North Korea and South Sudan and Somalia, just to name a few. Without the ascension, the threat of death that our brothers and sisters face in places like that, it only can bring power and fear over them. But with the ascension, the, the, the Lord Jesus is supremely personal. He's the mediator. He's the advocate. And as the writer of Hebrews says, he's now living to make intercession for us, and he can only do that if he goes back to the Father. Makes sense? You get that? It's, it's, it's incredibly important. It's incredibly powerful. It's incredibly relaxing. I'll mention this again toward the end. It's incredibly relaxing for us to know he's got it. Um, this is why we can face suffering that's awaiting even us, Right? It may not be the threat of death like uh, 
fellow Christians in places like I just mentioned, but we're all facing suffering, low level, high level, mid-level, whatever it is. But this is the promise that as we face those things, we can face them knowing that he is trustworthy because he has gone to his Father and now rules from on high. Listen to these words from uh, John Calvin, uh, a 16th century reformer. This is his description of the ascension. I thought it was uh, so good. I wanted to read it to you. He says, The Lord, by his ascension into heaven, has opened up the access to the heavenly kingdom, which Adam had shut. For having entered it in our flesh, as it were, in our name, it follows that we are in a manner seated in heavenly places, not entertaining a mere hope of heaven, but possessing it even now. Possessing it even now. Um, The ascension means that Jesus is absent from earth in terms of bodily presence, but he, so, so you can't experience him bodily, physically anymore as you could when he was uh, alive on the earth. Now, the way you experience him, the way you encounter him, is in and through the Spirit. So being united to him by faith happens through the Holy Spirit's work. And when you encounter him in this way, you are getting a foretaste, you're getting a preview of the fullness and the life that will be experienced by all of his people at the end of the age when he returns again to judge the living and the dead, when he returns in the same way that he left, as the angels said to these guys there in verse uh, 11. And without the ascension, they can't say that, right? But when he returns, it won't be witnessed by just 12 guys outside the city of Jerusalem. It will be experienced and witnessed and acknowledged by the entire world. And the ascension is the capstone, it's the promise, it's sort of the, the, the stamp of, you know that's coming. It's for sure. You can count on it. The only way for Jesus' people to enjoy the person and the power of the Spirit in the same way he did is for him to return to his Father. He'd, he had completed his mission. He had completed his mission in the power of the Spirit, but in order for the Spirit to be sent... The son had to go back. There's this mysteriousness in, in all of this uh, that has, uh, we're getting a window into kind of the workings of the, the Trinity. It's very hard to understand, hard to explain, uh, but, but amazing and wonderful to think about because the Father and the Son and the Spirit from all eternity conspire and plan and plot the plan of salvation. And the Father sends the Son and the Son is here and he accomplishes that work in being born as a baby, in living the life we should have lived, uh, in dying the death that we deserve to die, in being raised on the third day uh, to conquer sin and death, and then to be defeated, uh, and then to return, rather, to his father. But on his return to his father, it's not now just the three of them living in harmony and luxury for all eternity. They send the Spirit for us. So we're participating in the life of the Trinity and seated in the heavenlies. Gosh, it's amazing to think about. Hard to understand, but amazing to think about. And the ascension should at least give us some sense of confidence as he continues to work through us. But the ascension being foundational to our faith is one thing. Everything that comes before it depends on it actually happening. So I'm kind of working backward here, right? Uh, so if you go to, to uh, six through, verses 6 through 11, the ascension kind of happens at the end of that passage, but what comes before? 
Um, here's what I mean. In Jesus' commissioning of the apostles, he doesn't say, all right, now that I've defeated sin and death and am headed back to the Father, know that I'm rooting for you. I got your back. Good luck and God bless. And then he's gone. It doesn't happen that way, right? He says, no, now that the time has arrived for me to go and prepare a place for you, wait. Wait for the power Wait for the power you'll need to accomplish the work I'm giving you because without that power, you're doomed to fail. You will not get it done. So the Spirit comes as a gift with a promise attached to it. If Jesus doesn't return to his Father, the Spirit can't come. And if the Spirit can't come, we won't have access to the power that he says uh, we have access to here. And if we don't have that power, then our very witness, our very mission becomes worthless and meaningless. Look back at the assurance of pardon uh, for a second in your worship folder. What does this passage teach us about the gospel? Well, listen to the way Jesus describes the Spirit's work and how the gospel's connected to it. There's a lot of things here, but just a few I wanted to mention. The, the, the Father gives the Spirit, right? You have to have an understanding. You have to have a knowledge, Jesus says. You have to have a certain kind of sight. But those things must be given to you as well. He says the world doesn't have them, but go a little deeper. He says we have to be guided into all truth. We don't guide ourselves. We don't discover truth. We have to be guided into it. And when the Spirit hears from Jesus, or excuse me, what the Spirit hears from Jesus, he has to make known to us. So there's this assumption underlying Jesus' words that you and I have to be brought into this new reality. We, we don't conjure it up ourselves. We don't find it. It finds us. And as we heard last week, our hearts have to be opened uh, to spiritual reality. We don't do anything. We can't do anything. It is the Spirit and the Spirit alone's work to accomplish that. Salvation's by grace from start to finish. It's what God does from, from start to finish, from beginning to end. And just as Jesus was endowed with the Holy Spirit upon the start of his ministry, as we read in community Bible reading this last week, so will his followers be endowed with the Holy Spirit. But not, the power Jesus is describing is not political power. Look at the question they ask him in verse 6. After all is said and done, now they've come to what they, they think is the end. He's resurrected. He's conquered. He's, everything's going to be made new. Is this the time at which you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Can we finally kick the Romans out? Can we finally reign with you and have your, you know, our positions in your cabinet and all that kind of stuff? And he says, no, no, that, that's not the kind of power that you're going to get. That's not the kind of power that we're talking about. It's not power that's gained by being associated with him. It's, it's, it's power from on high, power from heaven, power that's not from this world, power that you can't get from gaining it or buying it or garnering it through votes or possessing it because you have a family, a certain family name. It's power that's a gift, it's power that must be received because we do nothing to earn it. In fact, Jesus' entire ministry, at least in part, was designed to teach his disciples and us that faith comes solely through dependence and weakness, through poverty of spirit. It comes through a recognition that I can't conjure up enough willpower or internal strength to accomplish the work that Jesus tells me I'm going to accomplish by his spirit, only through his spirit, that has to be given to me. That's the gospel, in fact, right? Do nothing 
nothing in my hands I bring. You have nothing to offer him anyway. You do nothing that you might gain everything through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And in turn, you'll do anything. You'll do anything he asks because he promises to empower you for the mission. He promises to put power in you, on you. That's, where we, that's what our word empower means, put power into. And that's the promise. That's what he says he's going to do. You will receive power, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Greek word used for power is the origin of our word dynamite. And so Jesus is saying that the Spirit is the source, is the, the source rather, of spiritual dynamite. It explodes out of his people into the world as the book of Acts unfolds. It's the fuel they need for the tasks that await them, and it's what the church needs today in order to accomplish our task, which is the same task. There's an expectation that when his people get the spiritual dynamite from the Spirit, there's an obligation to carry on forward in the work of being and in the work of bearing uh, witness. And so I mentioned uh, Uncle Ben earlier, Uh, And here's what Uncle Ben said, you know, Peter, with great power comes great responsibility. And it's true. It's true. All truth is God's truth, even the truth that comes in the uh, comics, right? there's There's great truth here. As Drew mentioned last week, and I loved this, he said, you know, the Holy Spirit comes from mission, not for individual religious self expression. The Holy Spirit comes from mission. And you see the connection. Or rather, you see the way Jesus connects it here in verse 8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you can enjoy that power and have, you know, personal uh, ecstatic spiritual times to yourself. No, he doesn't say that. He says you receive power when the Spirit comes on you, and you will in turn be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. He says that he is accomplishing his work through us when we walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The Apostle Paul says in Romans, he says in Romans as well, right after that, the Spirit that dwells in Christians is the same Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Should I repeat that? The same Spirit that dwells in Christians is the one that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So if you don't think you have power behind your work, right, think again. I'm not a person who lives like this is power, the the kind of power behind uh, my work. For those of you that know me, I don't even half the time act like I have any power, you know, to do much of anything. How are you doing? Fine. Right? Again, uh, he, he mentioned it last week, but you believe the gospel in your heart, notify your face. There, there, there's, there's something behind this that does, that does kind of come out, right? And I thought about this. You know, it's in the nature of an explosive force to be experienced or felt or seen or heard. You know, grenades don't go off silently. You don't uh, have C4 detonate somewhere in a building next to you, and you go, yeah, you know, I didn't even feel it when the building blew up. Of course not, right? Explosions are felt. They're experienced. And Jesus says that the power, the spiritual dynamite, will be so great that it will propel his people, his apostles, and us out into the city, the regions surrounding, and even beyond. 
So Jerusalem or Winter Haven, uh, Judea and Samaria, Polk County, even beyond places like Nicaragua and to the ends of the earth, really. And the world will be turned upside down in the process. The truth is, uh, you, you can only engage in the work of bearing witness once you've become a witness. And as we'll see throughout the book of Acts, what made the apostles such amazing evangelists and church planters was because they witnessed Jesus Christ's mighty work of salvation firsthand. And so they testified to it. They bore witness to it. And that task is born out of an identity. Because only a person who's tasted the grace of God in the good news of Jesus, only a person who's tasted that in their heart, that a person who, in a sense, has witnessed God himself transforming their life will have the ability to bear witness. If you look back at the call to worship uh, for a minute, um, when God calls his people witnesses there, it has a lot in common with the way we understand a witness in the courtroom setting, right? Um, when, when, you, uh, when you have a witness in the courtroom, uh, the words that they speak are referred to as what? Testimony, right? And their testimony is often what they saw, what they heard, what they know, what they wrote about. It's largely based on their experience in some way. And so when, when God calls his people Israel, his witnesses, he's not just asking them to verify what's true. He's saying, use your testimony to convince someone else of what's true. In fact, that's what a witness is, is doing. That's what both sides in a, in a legal, uh, in, a, in a trial are trying to do with their witnesses, right? Convince the jury of what's true. In Isaiah 43 and 44, God's goal is that the nations would turn from their idols to serve him, to turn away from false saviors and turn to him. And he's saying to his people, you are my witnesses. I am the only savior. I am the only rock. There is no other. You know that. Tell these people about that. Tell them how you've experienced that. And Christians, when they refer to their testimony, uh, most of you or many of you may have heard that term before, it's the account of how they've witnessed God working and uh, seeing uh, him, him do in their life. Jesus says that this bearing witness has a missionary, a sentness sense to it. We are sent out for the purpose of bearing witness. And we'll see it again and again in the book of Acts. Witnesses always have testimony. Otherwise, they're not called witnesses, right? And whatever words they speak, whatever their testimony is, it's for the purpose of saying, this is what has happened in my life. The apostles are either testifying to the story of Jesus or they're testifying to an event that's just happened, but they're always connecting it back to the story of Jesus and the gospel. But not only them... Whenever you or I comfort a friend who's hurting, we're bearing witness. Whenever you or I confront a friend who's hurt us or sinned against us, we're bearing witness. Whenever we engage another person who's maybe a doubter, a skeptic about Christianity, or just flat refuses to believe, we're bearing witness, right? As we disciple our children, we're bearing witness to them. But of course, the gospel affects even our witness. It, it transforms the character of our witness, and it does this because the Holy Spirit is the one who makes the witness possible in the first place. Holy Spirit witnesses to the person and work of Jesus in us. Without him, we don't even connect to that. You see how integral he is? See how important he is? You know why that's important? It, it should relax us. It should relax us. We don't have to convince other people. 
We don't have to convert other people. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, he uses us, absolutely. But we can say what we need to say and rest, right? We're compelled to share the gospel out of generosity, out of love, not guilt. We're, we're freed from the fear of being ridiculed or hurt by other people since we've already received God's favor. We don't need their favor. We're not worried about their favor. Our dealings with them reflect humility. We know we're saved by grace, not because of some superior insight we have. We haven't earned it. We can be hopeful for everyone, even the the so-called hard cases, because we're saved only by grace, not because we were the people most likely to become Christians, right? We can be courteous and careful with people. We don't have to push them or coerce them, because It's God's grace that opens hearts. It's the Spirit's work, not ours. The gospel makes us winsome witnesses, not confrontational, mean-spirited, arrogant people, right? There's something to be said for for the simple side-by-side nature of walking beside someone, befriending them, and bearing witness to how God has brought you to himself what he's teaching you, how he's leading you to repentance, how he's increasing your faith, there's far more long-term fruit that gets sustained when that happens than the other. The other being, for example, open air standing on the street corner, wearing sandwich boards in front of sporting events, knocking on doors in a particular neighborhood. Those things aren't wrong, of course. I've just not seen a lot of long-term fruit that results from those things. Befriending someone. Bearing witness to what God has done in your life, slowly but surely, in their life, you begin to see the Spirit work. This text teaches that supernatural power from on high is what enables and produces a sentness that results in the church bearing witness. And the church's missionary activity, listen, the church's missionary activity from the first century all the way to now rests on Jesus' living presence in heaven It rests on that. It's founded on that. Because without his living presence in heaven, the Spirit can't come. But the Spirit has come. And Jesus' sure return ensures that we can trust him and he will fulfill his word. And so in Christ, in Christ, through his Spirit, we can courageously and yet winsomely testify to his work in our lives and see our neighbors, see our community, our county, our our entire world transformed. It's why he sends us. He sends us so that his power would explode out of us into the world. And so would you pray with me uh, our theme this year? Let's pray for the gospel to advance among us. Pray for power from on high. Pray for the courage to bear witness. Pray for faith to trust the Spirit to work. It's the Spirit's work that we get to participate in. So pray with me. Lord Jesus, as uh, we'll sing in just a minute, we need you. Uh, We need you really, really badly. Uh, Because without you, again, as we'll sing, we fall apart. Uh, Without you, we are aimless. Uh, we, we, We have no direction. Uh, we're wishy-washy. We, we have a sense of being thrown out into the world, uh, purposeless, all those things. But in you, with you, by and through the power of your spirit, we're sent. We live on purpose. We can live on mission. We can be winsome witnesses and testify to the power of what you have done, not 2,000 years ago only, 
But even today, in our lives, in our families, in our workplaces, and so would you come and would you advance your gospel through us, through this congregation, in our community, uh, and may it explode out of us in a way that bears witness to how amazing and wonderful and glorious and powerful you are. Come and do that work, Holy Spirit, only you can. We wait for you now, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Amen. The promise that we serve uh, not just a risen Savior, but an ascended Savior uh, allows you to be a witness even in the darkest of circumstances. Uh, And so a Greek word that came to mean witness was a word from which we now get our word martyr. Uh, And so, and as we'll see in Acts, it would take some of the apostles to their death witnessing, testifying to the work that Jesus had done, not just in the past, but was doing in the present. Uh, And so as you go, know that you serve a risen Savior and an ascended Savior who rules and reigns. And as you go, he goes with you in the power and through his Holy Spirit. So receive these words of promise as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.